0: For those of you who are guests here today or those of you who are joining us online for the first time through this summer, we've been in a series of messages we're calling Dear Church. And we're calling it that because what we're talking about during this season is uh, the letter of revelation that John wrote to the churches in Asia Minor. We'll pull a map up here on the screen and uh, you'll see the map here of Asia Minor. It's the area that we know of today as Turkey. And uh, John is in exile on the island of Patmos, which is just that little island that's faintly circled in blue down in the lower left. And he is writing a letter to the churches of Asia Minor because he has pastored some of those churches. And he is at that time the bishop of all of those churches. And he has written a letter on a scroll because that's what they did back in that day. They didn't have email like today. They didn't have printing presses. And uh, so it was one scroll. He writes revelation on this scroll and it gets sent to Ephesus. And they read it there and then they pass it on up to Smyrna, and they read it there and on to Pergamum. And they follow that postal road, that trade road that is a major road going through at circles around Asia Minor. And in the letter, Jesus is commending those churches for a lot of ways in which they're faithful. But he's also pointing out some of the areas in their lives and in the life of the church where the warning lights are on and where he wants them to take some corrective measures. And he says, if you don't, I'll remove your lampstand from you. In other words, you're witness to the world because we're called as followers of Jesus to be the light of the world. And obviously, the... Believers, the followers of Jesus in those churches, listened. Because at the time when they were there, they were living in what was probably the most corrupt and most evil of all of the Roman provinces. And within a few generations after receiving the letter of revelation, do you know that Asia Minor became 80, 85% followers of Jesus? Staggering. These people listened, they embraced the words of Jesus to become more like him, and to live into the truths of what he was saying to them, and that was how God used them to change their part of the world in which they lived, to where it went from from being one of the most evil provinces in the empire to being 80, 85% Christian. Well today, we wanna look at the letter to Pergamum. We've seen Ephesus, we've seen Smyrna. We want to look at the letter now to Pergamum. And understand that Pergamum is the greatest of all of the cities in Asia Minor. Pergamum is the capital of Asia in that area. Pergamum, in a sense, is the Washington, D.C. of Asia Minor. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Ephesus, and we saw that Ephesus was like the New York City of that region. Pergamum is the capital of that area. It's the Washington, D.C. Pergamum is the center of political power there. The Roman governor who was there wielded the power of Rome. He was the main representative of Rome in that part of the empire. Pergamum had the second largest library in the world at that time. And Pergamum had the largest medical school in the world. The largest medical school in all the world was in Pergamum at that time. And so this is a center for culture and learning and government power. And listen to Jesus' message as he begins it through the Apostle John when John writes this, these words of Jesus, to the angel of the church in Pergamum Right Now, the angel is the pastor. Uh, We are not angels, believe me, but remember... He's writing in code, right? He's writing a lot of this in code. And uh, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who is put to death in your city, where Satan lives wow. Talk about a description of a city where Satan has his throne, where Satan lives. And why is it? Why does Jesus call Pergamum this? Well, there's a number of reasons. One of the reasons is this was the first of the cities that devoted themselves to emperor worship. We talked in past weeks how in that day there was a progression where the emperors began to declare that they were God, that they were divine, and they should be worshipped. And it began with Caesar Augustus. And Pergamum was the place where they built the temple in worship and in honor of Caesar Augustus. And then they built a couple others after it. One to Trajan and and, uh, one to uh, uh, another emperor. And uh, uh, Hadrian. And so they had these temples there in the area of Pergamum that were in honor of these emperors and the emperor gave to the right gave the to the governor of Pergamum the right of sword the right of the sword it's called and uh, and basically that was the area where if anyone was to be executed in that part of the empire that execution had to be approved by by the Roman governor that was there And so this was a place where people were worshiping these men, these emperors, who claimed, I am God. And where they were taking the lives of those who would not worship them, as we see here in Revelation 2.13, where he talks about Antipas losing his life, being a martyr, dying because he is a follower of Jesus. And I don't know if you know this, but the Greek word and uh, uh, the Greek language that Revelation is written in, the word uh, for witness is martis. And it's a word that we get martyr from. And what was going on there was Christians were beginning to be killed because they would not worship the emperor. And Antipas is one of those. And Jesus encourages in this letter of revelation for his people to stand strong in the face of persecution. And in fact, John says, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. What's he saying when he says that? Well... Whoever wields a sword, whoever holds a sword, has the power, right? And what Jesus is saying to the people is that, hey, ultimately, Rome and ultimately these emperors don't have ultimate power. It's me, it's Jesus, it's the Son of God. Oh, the Roman sword may take people's lives physically, but ultimately, in eternity and for all time, Jesus says, I am the one with the power. It is God who controls things ultimately. And that's one of the great messages of Revelation as you and I go through life with the battles that we face and the struggles that we face. We sung of that this morning. And we've read the book. We know the end of the story. In the end, God wins. And that's what Jesus is saying when he talks about himself being the one that holds the double-edged sword. In the end, he wins. And so take heart. Take heart in the midst of all that we face that's going on in the world around us. And there's another reason why John calls Pergamum Satan's throne. And it's not only that they worship the emperor, but also they worship Zeus, the god Zeus. And and this is a uh, a replica of what was there in Pergamum in that day. It was one of the centers of Zeus' worship there in the empire. And Zeus was seen as uh, the god of gods, the god of creation, the king of kings, the one who was, in a sense, the head god. And so they built this altar and they built this platform and Zeus sat on that platform. That's a likeness of what they thought he looked like and what they made up in their mind, this mythological God, Zeus and Zeus sat there and day and night, they would raise incense and they would worship him and they would sacrifice to him. And there Zeus sat on his throne and the people that think that he is God. And it's interesting, a few chapters later in Revelation chapter 4, John describes how he was in the spirit and he saw before him not the throne of Zeus, but the throne of heaven. And the one who is seated on that throne is not Zeus. It is Jesus who is king of kings and lord of lords. You, Jesus, not the Roman emperor, not Zeus, are ultimately in charge of this world. You, O God, are the creator and the sustainer of the universe. Zeus and the Roman emperors are counterfeits. Counterfeits devised by the evil one, by Satan, to draw people away from worshiping the true God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Well, there's another reason, I believe, why John and Jesus call Pergamum Satan's throne, and that is because there was another mythological god who the people worshipped, and that was Asclepius, or in Latin, Asclepius. And this is a statue of what they, uh, the image that they made of this uh, mythological god. And, of course, he has the rod with the snake around it, because Asclepius is, in ancient Greek and Roman mythology, the god of healing and the god of medicine. And you see today, snakes are that uh, symbol of modern medicine today. And the reason for that is that in ancient times, people believed snakes to be eternal because they shed their skin. They're reborn every year. And so it became the symbol of healing and of medicine. But Asclepius, it's interesting what they say about him, that he was born of a virgin. They consider him to be born... Of a virgin and the god who controlled healing and not only did he control healing but in mythological thinking he raised people from the dead and in their stories in mythology they talk about zeus uh, talk about asclepius raising people from the dead and zeus gets jealous of him and he kills him but after three days he regrets that he killed him so he raises him up and he ascends him up to Mount Olympus, where he sits on the right hand of Zeus. We've huh? heard stories like that—a huh? counterfeit of Jesus, Asclepius, born of a virgin, heals people, raises people from the dead. He himself is killed, raises from the dead three days later, and ascends up to Mount Olympus and sits at the right hand of Zeus—a total counterfeit of Jesus and, and it's interesting that Asclepius is one who uh, used some waters that would stir that was part of what they would heal Asclepius in the temple in the temple for Asclepius the people who were the priests in the temple were the physicians who graduated from that largest medical school in the world there in Pergamum And these physicians would serve in the temple and people would come to them and they would doctor them. But in one of the treatments that they used, they they used mineral waters that would stir and people would drink these mineral waters and it was good for their digestion. It helped uh, do some healing work within them because of the minerals in them. But they also believed that when you got into the waters as they would stir and bubble, you could be healed. And John Who's writing revelation to this area of the world, this region of the Roman Empire, also writes his gospel to this region of the empire. And it's interesting that if you look through John, every miracle that John talks about Jesus doing in the gospel of John is written specifically to this region of the empire to speak into the false worship that these people are buying into. And as we think of this false mythological god, Asclepius, who they believe healed through stirring waters, we think of that story in John chapter 5, that story of the man who is there at the pool of Bethesda. And the Bible tells us that he's an invalid for 38 years, and he's not able to get into the waters when they stir in time for him to be healed. And Jesus comes along there in the gospel story that John tells, and he begins to engage the man in conversation. And he asks him, what do you want? And this guy who's been an invalid for so long says, I want to be healed, but I can't get into the water when it stirs. And Jesus says to him, and then I I tell you, pick up your mat and you walk. (laughs) And instantly the man is healed and he picks up his mat and walks. And it's interesting that that. The other Gospels don't mention this miracle. Why did they not mention this miracle? Well, because John is writing about it into the culture in which he is speaking. And you think, what is going on in Jerusalem that somebody would think that? Well, do you understand that in Jerusalem in that day, right next to the Pool of Bethesda is a temple devoted to the worship of Asclepius? Some of that mythology had begun to seep into the lives of the Jewish people. And John is writing his gospel. And he's saying, Asclepius? And his moving water? Give me a break. (laughs) Didn't do anything for that guy. But I watched my Jesus, not stirring waters, heal a man with the power of his word. And John is writing into this culture. And this is one of the reasons why he calls Pergamum Satan's throne. There's another reason, and that is that there was another god that they worshipped, and it was a god called Serapis, and this god was the Egyptian god of healing and medicine. Asclepius was in Roman and Greek mythology, Serapis is worshipped in Egyptian uh, mythology, and that would be understandable that people in Pergamum would be worshiping this Egyptian god because remember, this was the largest medical center in the world. Egyptians came to this area to be trained and they would stay there and they built a temple in worship to Serapis. And it's interesting that they did a lot of the same kinds of things with stirring waters and mineral waters as they did for Asclepius. but there was one other twist that they added to worship of Serapis and they would use dirt and they would combine it with the water and these people would have mud baths in a sense. And often they would take those mud baths and they would pack them on people's eyes to help them with their eyesight and as we think about this we think of john chapter 9 where we have the story of the man who was born blind from birth and Jesus' disciples ask him "What is it is that caused this and and jesus says it's not a sin that he committed it's not something his parents did it's so that the so that that God might be glorified in him. And what does Jesus do? He spits on the ground and he makes mud and he takes that mud and he packs it on the man's eyes and then he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam and you'll be healed and instantly the man is healed. Instantly. It's interesting to me that, that none of the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, don't mention the mud miracle. Why is that? Because John is writing to a culture where they're worshiping Serapis. And then you have a couple chapters later in John 9, Lazarus being raised from the dead, and it's a message to a culture that thinks the sleepiest can raise people from the dead. And John is saying, look, this is a bunch of baloney. Give me a break, these mythological gods we worship. They aren't real, they are counterfeits. It is Jesus who can bring healing. It is Jesus who is the God who heals. And that is why Revelation 2, Jesus and both John say Pergamum is the city where Satan lives. Now there's a couple other reasons, and one of them is the next goddess that the people followed, and that's the goddess Demeter, who is the goddess of groceries, we could say today. This was the person, the goddess, who they believed provided grain and vegetables and food out of the earth that they could eat. And Demeter, it was interesting that there was some other ways it was a counterfeit of Jesus. Is When you wanted to follow Demeter, what they believed was that you had to be washed in the blood if you were going to become a convert to Demeter. And so people would If they wanted to follow Demeter, they'd be put down into a pit called the Terabolium, and they'd put a grate over it, and they'd bring a sacred bull over the grate, and they would cut its throat. And the person down in the pit would be in white robes, and they were washed in the blood of Demeter. They were washed in the blood of the sacred bull, and they were offered as a result bread and life and ultimately eternal life. Fascinating to me in John 6, John talks about Jesus feeding the 5,000, right? And what does he feed 5,000 people with? Five small loaves of barley bread and a couple of fish. And what John is saying is, Demeter? You think Demeter's the goddess of groceries? Give me a break. I was there the day my rabbi, my Jesus, fed 5,000 people with five barley loaves and a couple of fish and there was so much left over there was a basket for each of us 12 disciples to pick up when it was all said and done I saw it with my own eyes it's not Demeter who's real but it's Jesus don't get caught up and sucked into the way of the world John is writing in Revelation when he talks about Satan's throne and the place where Satan lives being Pergamum and then lastly, as we think about this, before we look at the rest of this text, there was one other false god that they worshipped in Pergamum, and that was the god Dionysus. And this was the god of wine and party and happiness. And they believed it was Dionysus who made the grapes grow and who made the wine ferment that made people's hearts glad and experience true happiness and joy. In fact, they believed that Dionysus offered three things. Happiness in life, being one with the God, which interestingly enough they called being in the spirit, an eternal life after people died. If that's not a counterfeit of Jesus, I don't know what is. And, and you know how you got one in the spirit with Dionysus? You got drunk. And the drunker you were, the more you were in the Spirit, which is why Paul writes in Ephesians, a place in Asia Minor where they also worship Dionysus, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. The way to be in the Spirit is to be one with Jesus, not one with Dionysus. They also believed in Dionysian worship that you would take the sacred bowl and sacrifice it, and then you would eat its raw meat, and you would drink the wine. You would eat the flesh of the sacred bull and drink the wine, and you were one with the God. Talk about a counterfeit of communion that we celebrate regularly here at church. As we think of Dionysus, there was another part of this that fascinated me as I began to study this, and that was that on Dionysus's birthday in May, at the celebration of that time, what they did was they had a big festival and what the priests of Dionysian worship would do is they would bring up these empty jars up the stairs to the temple of Dionysus and they would take and fill those jars, these big huge uh, vats with the sacred water from the spring that ran through the temple and then they would close the doors of the temple and they would padlock them and in the morning, Voila, the water had turned to wine. <laughs> it takes us back to John 2, where John is with Jesus at a wedding in Cana. And they run out of wine. And Jesus tells them to fill the vats with water. And with a spoken word, the water turns to wine. And in a sense, John is saying, Dionysus? Dionysus? Hey, you don't know what goes on in that temple when the doors are padlocked at night? (laughs) I saw with my own eyes, Jesus, my rabbi, turn the water into wine. Don't be caught up in all of the free wine and all of the raw meat and all of the Mardi Gras party atmosphere that is Dionysus worship, thinking that you will be filled with the Spirit. Dionysus is a fraud. It is Jesus. And obviously people in that day were getting caught up in all of this and that was what was going on in Pergamum. And Jesus is warning the people there in Pergamum through John. He's warning the people that that they need to follow Jesus, not these counterfeits that draw people away from a relationship with the one true God, that draw people away from what gives true happiness, true fulfillment in life, and eternal life in the next. Maybe as I talk about this and give us a sense of what was going on in that day and why John is writing what he writes, maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, what does that all have to do with me? We, we don't worship these gods. <laughs> you know, we don't worship Dionysus, the god of party. We don't worship you know, Demeter, the god of groceries, or all these other gods and goddesses. But we do have our idols, don't we? In our culture, it's called money and the pursuit of that. Maybe it's possessions, maybe it's popularity and wanting to be liked by people. Maybe it's wanting something in life that we want and we go after that. Maybe it's getting involved in all of the activities of our culture that that at times pull us away from spending time with Jesus. And those activities aren't wrong, but so oftentimes we get caught up in in all the activities of the world and they became more important to us than our relationship with God does at times. And oh yeah, we come to church for an hour during the week, but then we go out in the world and we get involved in all this other stuff. I think God is saying to us here in this message, through John to Pergamum, don't compromise your faith Don't accommodate the world. Make me first in your life and know that I am the one who is the real God. I'm the one that will give you true happiness. I am the one that will give you truly eternal life. And speaking to that culture that is living amidst the pressure to compromise, look at what John says in verses 14 and 15 of Revelation 2. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, he says. You have people who hold to the teaching of Balak, who taught Balaam, who taught Balaam to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual morality. He's referring back to the Old Testament and the prophet Balaam who, uh, who managed to sway people away and, uh, from living for God and getting into the ways of the world. And he says, then likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And, and we saw a couple of weeks ago that who the Nicolaitans were, was they were people in that culture who, who they knew the gods that the people were worshiping were False. And they understood that, but but they also were in this culture that was pressuring them to compromise, where where you couldn't go into become part of a trade guild unless you worshipped one of the false gods or the emperor, or you couldn't buy and sell your goods in the marketplace. And so, how were you going to live in that culture in that world unless you gave in and compromised? And they said, "Well, we know the gods aren't real, so you know we just cross our fingers, put them behind our back, burn a little incense to the god. What's the big deal? They're not real." And John is writing, and Jesus is saying, don't follow that. Don't compromise. Don't accommodate yourself to the culture. Don't assimilate into the culture. Be different from it. And that doesn't mean we don't get involved with the culture and we're not a witness of the world, right? We're supposed to be salt of the earth and light of the world. And it's to be salt in, in our world, we've got to, you know, salt's got to get on the meat if it's going to have an impact. So it doesn't mean we separate from the culture and we kind of get into our little holy huddles where we, we can worship together and we ignore the rest of the world. No, we worship together so that we can be encouraged in our faith to go out into the world and be salt and make a difference in our world and be the light of the world, being a witness for Jesus around us. And so he's saying here, don't get into accommodating yourself to the world. Don't live into the world's way of our sexualized society don't live into the world's way of how we do life, but live for Jesus. Be sold out, all out for Him as we walk through life in this world. And as we do, understand as we've been seeing these last weeks that there'll be pressures and there may even be some persecution that comes as a result of us living for Jesus. I mean, it's happening. I, I, I think of the episode of, uh, I think of The episode of, uh, the View that was on back. I, I saw a clip from it a, a year or two ago when Mike Pence was president and Joy Behar was making fun of Mike Pence because Mike had made the claim and said that he, he talks with God in prayer. And then at times he hears the spirit of God speaking into his spirit. And Joy Behar is laughing about that. And she's, you know, guys, cuckoo. And everybody laughs. When well, we have students today who, in high schools and colleges, when they take a stand for their faith and maybe even write about some things in their philosophy classes or in other classes, teachers downgrade them because of their stance and what they believe. Or I think of people in the marketplace who have... Missed out on promotions because they are followers of Jesus. Or people in the marketplace who lose their jobs at times because of that. And there are examples after examples that we could talk about today. And, and through John's writing to the church in Pergamum, Jesus is saying, don't be a Nicolaitan. Don't give in to the world's way. Continue to follow me. Continue to be the salt of the earth. Continue to be the light of the world. Don't compromise your faith. In other words, don't follow the Christ of culture who says, hey, it's okay to be a part-time Christian. It's okay to give a little bit of yourself to Jesus. But instead, follow the Jesus of Scripture who says, come and take up your cross and follow me and live all out for me as you live life in this world. And maybe as we hear that this morning, we're looking at our own lives and we think of ways in which maybe our thought life or our attitudes or the things we do, and in some things we're not living for Jesus. Maybe there are some things we allow ourselves to see that, in this sexualized society or ways that we go to things on the internet, maybe there are ways in which when we get in a crowd and people are speaking out against Christianity, we just remain silent, we shrink back. And Jesus is calling you and me to live for him and to remember the example of these early Christians who walked couple thousand years ago, into the most evil and corrupt province in the Roman Empire. And because they stood up for Jesus and didn't do it in an angry way like we see a lot of Christians doing today with the stuff we see posted on Facebook and on YouTube that I see some Christians doing, I go, no, stop. It's not the way of Jesus. The way that Jesus used the disciples in the early church was through his love. They walked into their world and into their culture that was so anti-Christian and so anti-Jesus. And they loved people in his name, even at the cost of their lives, which we'll see in a couple of weeks, or we see today with Antipas. And Jesus used them to change their world one life at a time when they loved others in his name and I encourage us today to do what I call the search me prayer the Psalm 139 search me prayer and take an audit or an assessment of our life and ask ourselves and say God God search me and test me know my anxious thoughts know if there's any show me if there's anything offensive in me and help me to walk in the way of life your way Jesus God, do a work in your life and mine. And if we find that there are ways that we are casual Christians, if we are accommodating the culture, if we are not living for Jesus, look at what he says to us through John in verse 16. Repent. Repent. Repent of living a compromised Christian life. Repent of, of, of the ways in which we at times buy into the culture. Repent of those things. Turn life around because that's what repentant means. It means we're walking in this direction in life and we do a U-turn and we go the other direction. Repent. And when we repent, there is grace And I want to end with that because that's the last verse, the last words of Jesus to the church at Pergamum. Look at verse 17. He says, whoever repents, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches and to the one who is victorious. In other words, the one who overcomes the world, not through our own power, but through the power of the Holy Spirit in us. He says, I'm going to give you a couple things, and this is awesome stuff. I will give you hidden manna and I will give you a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. And what he's saying here is there's grace and forgiveness and mercy for those of us who get caught up at times in living in the ways of the world. And we're willing to repent and come back to Jesus. And if you're one who's here that has never trusted Christ in faith, or if you're one who's watching online and you've never trusted Jesus in faith, if you're willing to trust him and ask forgiveness of those things that you do that are wrong in life, know that he will give you that forgiveness. He will walk with you and enter into your life and help you live for him along the way. And when we repent and when we Don't accommodate to the culture, but we live all out for the Christ of Scripture. He says he will give us hidden manna. What's that mean? Well, this is a reference to the honey-flavored bread that God fed the people of Israel during those 40 years that they were in the desert after being freed from slavery in Egypt. And in John chapter 6, John talks about this, and he applies it to Jesus. And Jesus applies it to himself when he calls himself the bread of life. And what that means is that when you and I, as we walk through life, will trust in Jesus and we will feed on him and feed on his word, he gives us all that we need to sustain us in that relationship as we walk living life out here in this world. And then he says another benefit is a white stone with a new name written on it. What does that mean? Well, there's some wonderful images of that day. In that day in the court systems, when you were on trial for a crime that you either did or didn't commit, when they returned the verdict, they returned the verdict to you with a stone. And if you were guilty, they gave you a black stone. If you were innocent, they gave you a white stone. And what Jesus is saying is that when we trust in him and we repent, he makes us innocent, not because we're innocent in and of our own right, but because of what He's done for us on the cross. And then other images of the white stone are in that day when they were in athletic contests. Whoever won the athletic contest, the victor was given a white stone, and that white stone was an uh, was the entrance ticket to the award ceremony later. And the white stone was also used in other ways. If people got an invitation to a wedding or some big banquet, they got a white pebble or a white stone and they would take that with them to where they were going. And that was their entrance ticket. And think about the image of that, of how when you and I repent, when you and I trust Jesus in faith, we are not only declared innocent by God for what we've done because Jesus has paid the price of that, but we then get the entrance into the great heavenly banquet our ticket it's amazing imagery here and and then he says not only that but then he says there's a new name on it and names in the Bible are real significant aren't they there's a new name that he's going to give us and that means that that's going to be our identity that's going to be our destiny because we follow Jesus our destiny and our identity isn't how the world defines us Our destiny and our identity is in Jesus Christ and the name he gives us. And names are real significant in the Bible. If you read through the Bible, you see that. Abram becomes Abraham, the father of many nations. That's going to be his destiny. A sneak, a little sneak deceiver by the name of Jacob. God says to him, no longer are you going to be called Jacob, which means deceiver or supplanter. Instead, you're going to be called Israel, one who wrestled with God and prevailed. Simon, who wavers and wobbles, who's hot one day and cold the next. Jesus says, no longer are you going to be Simon, I'm calling you Petrus. In Greek it means rock. Nobody saw Peter as a rock, but Jesus. An ordinary guy by the name of Joe was written about yesterday in Charlie Mitz, If you get Charlie Mitz's daily devotional, Charlie's a member of our church. He writes a daily devotional. A lot of us get it. He wrote yesterday about this ordinary guy by the name of Joe. And they begin to call him Barnabas, son of encouragement. Son of encouragement because of his extraordinarily generous and gracious spirit toward people. There's a big, it's a big deal, this name thing in the Bible. And as i think about that i i i think you know before i close i gotta tell you one of my favorite i love baseball okay i'm a huge baseball fan i think it's i think it's the greatest sport there is i know not everybody thinks that but i do and one of my favorite managers of all times was tommy lasorda the manager of the los angeles dodgers for a lot of years and tommy lasorda was a great motivator and back in the 1980s tommy lasorda had a pitcher who pitched for the Dodgers, and i got to tell you, he was a very unimposing figure. He was tall, he was thin, he had a baby face, and he had a name that wasn't real imposing either. His name was Oral Hersheiser. It's not an imposing or intimidating name. And that year, early on in his career, Oral Hershiser was struggling, and Tommy Lasorda saw something in him that nobody else saw, and he went to Oral Hershiser, and he said, Oral, he says, I'm not going to call you Oral anymore. I'm going to call you another name. I'm giving you the nickname Bulldog. <laughs> bulldog. Nobody saw Oral Hershiser as a bulldog, but Tommy Lasorda did. And he believed in him, and he began to live into that destiny. And at the end of the year, the Dodgers made the playoffs, and they had the deciding game with the New York Mets to see who was going to play in the World Series. And, of course, you knew that the Dodgers were going to win because on the mound was Bulldog. And on the mound for the Mets was a guy by the name of Ron Darling. I mean, think about it, you know? Lasorda's yelling from the dugout, Strike him out, Bulldog! Davy Johnson's yelling from the Mets. So I go, strike him out, darling. You know, no contest. I sort of saw something in him and gave him a new name. And that's what Jesus does. No one saw Simon Peter as being rocky, but that's what Jesus calls him. And Jesus says to us here in John 2.17 that he's going to give to you and me a new name and that is going to be our identity, our character, our redemption. As an ordinary you and me become what God designed us to be. And that new name will be just for us. In other words, it will be an intimate name. It will be like lovers who have names for each other that only they use with one another. And it's like Jesus is saying to us that one day you will stand before me who made you, before me who thought you up and created you in your mother's womb. You'll stand before me who loves you and who wants a relationship with you. And I will give you a new name that is between just you and me and it will be because we are intimate, we are close. And we will be closer than husband and wife. We will be closer than a father or mother. We will be closer than a best friend or a child. And we will be made whole by his love. And I look at that and I say, oh, wow, what a magnificent promise that is. And I don't know about you, but it causes me to want to follow Jesus with all out determination instead of compromising my faith as I live life in this world. And so I hope and I pray it will motivate you today as you go home and you think about this and you think about this new name and the love that Jesus has for you and the reality that one day, one day, we're gonna be with him face to face and he's gonna give us a new name.